Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 23rd, 2023, Thanksgiving Day. Of course, it's always Thanksgiving Day in Silicon Valley. We're giving thanks for someone or something. Uh, these days, we are thankful, at least according to the FT, that um, uh, Sam Altman and OpenAI have been, quote unquote, reunited. I'm sure I'm not certain they were ever really disunited. A um, lot of interpretation of what really happened with OpenAI. The Wall Street Journal suggests it was a struggle between what they call ineffective altruists and Sam Altman, who is anything but ineffective. He's probably not particularly altruistic either. Um, this is all good preparation for an event I'm doing next week uh, in Barcelona at the excellent Santa Monica uh, museum, a kind of real life uh, action museum. We're doing something next Friday, December 1st, a creative manifesto for a critical AI future. Of course, what's happening with AI is also about a critical AI future. Earlier today, we talked with uh, Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger, Professor of Internet uh, Governance at Oxford University, who is participating at our event. Our, next Friday on December 1st. And another person who will be participating is my guest and old friend, Margaret Heffernan, a much publicized author, entrepreneur, broadcaster. Her last book was Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, essential reading actually for figuring out the future of AI. Uh, Margaret, welcome. She's joining us from Bath uh, in England where she lives. Margaret from Bath, what's the view of this open AI thing? Is it a storm in a teacup or important? Well, I think, to be honest, I think it's a sort of reflection of some of the bigger issues implicit in AI, which is to say, <clears throat> I don't purport to know the ins and outs of what's going on, but I think there, there has been for quite a long time a great deal of concern about who's in charge, who's in charge of AI, given the damage or disruption that it will cause, who's going to pay the bill for that? And in some ways, I think the whole OpenAI Sam Altman controversy reflects all of that, you know, which is originally Sam Altman wanted it, you know, this, his company to be a, a nonprofit. Then he slightly changed his mind. Now he has quite a complicated governance structure. Actually, who's responsible for what isn't very clear. And that's absolutely true of almost every issue around AI. So I think on the one hand, it shows that people's optimistic belief that somehow as the technology matures, the industry will mature, everybody will become terribly grown up. I think it suggests that actually that's very unlikely to be true and that we would do well to be quite wary of the ambiguities around it and be bolder in asserting what the fences around it need to be. Are you suggesting, then, that this uh, recent story, hysteria, really, out here in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. is one of accountability, it, implicit or explicit? Is the debate about who should be accountable, or is it really a debate avoiding accountability? Well, I think it's a debate between people who would like to escape accountability 
and others who feel that there should be some. I mean, I think for a long time, there was a belief that uh, don't worry about it. You know, the market will keep things in check. And it's perfectly clear that the market has not kept things in check. You know, Facebook has not become, or Meta has not become a more responsible citizen. Um, you know, Google still poses enormous questions around its use of data. And just because quite often the public is rather pacific in the face of all this stuff, which they try super hard not to understand, doesn't mean that what's going on is good for them or good for anybody. So I think, you know, what we've learned is that founders don't necessarily mature and become responsible citizens, that industries don't suddenly become responsible citizens. There is a role for regulation and we can't keep treating these new technologies as if they're somehow special and the ways in which we've always insisted on regulating other industries somehow don't apply to these gifted children. You know, the truth of the matter is that in any other industry, you have to prove that your products do no harm. That's true in pharmaceuticals, it's true in healthcare, it's true in healthcare devices, it's true with furniture, bicycles, cars, airplanes, you name it. And I never quite understood why the tech industry thinks it's so special that it gets a free pass. The titles of your book could actually be used, I think, to um, to summarize uh, our current situation. As I said, your last book was uh, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. And the one before that, or one of the ones before that, was Willful Blindness, Where We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. I think Silicon Valley is guilty of willful blindness, a blindness which um, it's willful of because it, it benefits them. You're also the author of a couple of interesting polemics on uh, women and technology and and, and leadership mm -hmm. one uh, women on top uh about uh women entrepreneurs rewriting the rules of business and another short piece more than a dream on feminist utopias is there anything chilling margaret about the fact that the two most and i use this word carefully obstinate open ai board members who were fearful of the implications of uh, chat GPT on the world are both women. And they're the ones who seem to be the casualties of all the politics. They're the ones who are being replaced as it happens by uh, men. And uh, one in particular, who's been guilty of various kinds of scandals associated with women at Harvard University. Does that trouble you? It troubles me a lot. Um, it doesn't surprise me a lot. You know, I ran tech companies in the 90s and early noughties. Um, and most people I met said I was the first female tech CEO they'd ever met. I suspect in most cases, I was the only female tech CEO that they ever met. It is still a strikingly male place. And I think, you know, I think there are all sorts of issues with that. But in particular, I think, and of course, in this area, generalizations are always really, really tricky. But I think in general, I would say that women have a concern, which they are not afraid to voice, about the consequences of their action on those who are less powerful than themselves. They don't regard being you know, the loudest, boldest, brashest person in the room as some kind of claim to fame. And it may well be 
that they take more seriously their sense of social responsibility. That has never been the ethos of Silicon Valley. And it may also explain why women generally have not thrived there. And as it happens, the, the two women um, who have been essentially kicked off the board, oh. neither of them are in Silicon Valley. I think one's in DC. I'm not sure where the other one is. Hello, Toner, and I, I can't actually remember the name of the other woman. Um, is this, and again, I, I got to be careful here, uh, Margaret, and you'll correct oh. me, no doubt, if, I, if I'm generalizing, but is there something shall we say female about the willingness to blow up the company if it you're even your own company if it's gonna destroy the world which men can't do it's 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 almost like a parable out of the bible well i think there is a willingness to stop right i mean one of the things that i think is quite characteristic of silicon valley is it is insatiable you know, it knows no limits. It accepts no limits. It doesn't accept limits from government or from even what one might consider kind of basic social norms. I think women definitely do have a sense that sometimes self-restraint is quite a useful thing. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't know the details of what they did or why they did it. So I can't say, yes, they were super caring social responsibility for responsible people. But I can say that the very few female peers that I've met in the tech industry have a more instinctive social concern than I've seen generally elsewhere. But, you know, having said that, of course, generalizations are odious. And I think what's really clear in this is that Sam Altman himself seems to be very conflicted. And in general, in those situations, you know, it would do, they, everybody would do better to calm down, take more time, be more patient and shut the hell up as far as, um, you know, publicity is concerned. These are really important, hard decisions, and they should be made with a certain amount of poise, which is clearly notably lacking. I mean, we're also seeing, again, the... I mean, what I can only call really spoiled brat behavior, right? I'm a special person. The rules don't apply to me. And an awful lot of people kowtowing to that. You know, they kowtowed to it in Meta. They kowtowed to it in Theranos. So maybe, And of course, Theranos was run by a woman. So it's not just the men who are misbehaving. No, 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 it isn't. But there is this sort of sense of this super gifted individual without mm. whom really the planet would stop spinning. And therefore, we must go out of our way to cater for their requirements. And I do think it's, you know, it's well past time to start thinking of being part of the world instead of some super elite adjunct to it. Yeah, and I, 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 I couldn't agree more about the rules not applying to me. And I think there's something of that in Altman. You say he's conflicted, but... He's conflicted in a way that doesn't seem to be particularly painful to him and which allow him the rules not to. But of course him. not, right? So he's not conflicted in a in a biblical sense. He's conflicted in a Silicon Valley sense, which means I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I still am gonna do it. Yeah, and if I can get away with it, I dare people to stop me. 
And because there's a wildly romanticized sense of genius, you know, everybody thinks, oh, we better not stop him. I mean, I don't know if he should be stopped or not, but I do think that having some kind of sense of the implications of the technology that you're building and what to do about it and with it um, is well, well overdue. You know, it's really interesting. Um, in his book, Coders, you know, Clive Thompson writes about um, how in, in at one point in physics departments, when they were trying to build some barriers around how far research should go, what they always found is that other scientists wouldn't quite understand the problem. But physicists post Hiroshima definitely understood the problem. They definitely understood that you can go too far. And I don't see that sense of, um, I don't know, the capacity, that sense of self-doubt, that sense that we could go too far. I don't, I have never seen that in Silicon Valley. I've never seen the concern that maybe we, like our fellow physicists, might pursue a wonderful idea just a little bit too far. Now, of course, there are also fantastic people like Stuart Russell who see this really, really clearly and understand the need to have a much more uh, mature, diverse debate and discussion and who do think that the problems of control are answerable, but they're not going to be answered if nobody's asking them. We are speaking with Margaret Heffernan, the author of many books, including her latest, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. Margaret will be joining us in Barcelona next week for uh, an event about AI and creativity, a creative manifesto for a critical AI future. Uh, Margaret, earlier in this conversation, you noted that Silicon Valley is insatiable. Is there something, and I, and I like that word, or I'm not, I'm, I like the, the way in which you describe Silicon Valley. I'm not sure I like the word insatiable. Is there something insatiable about all these new AI engines, platforms, algorithms, whatever you want to call them, that they literally have been designed to be insatiable, to hoover up all data, all information that we've ever created to, to create these supposedly smart machines? Well, I think the premise is that the more data you have, the closer to knowledge you get, right? There are huge differences between data, information, and knowledge. But the working assumption is more equals better. I mean, that is, you know, there's a very obvious parallel connection relationship between that belief, more is better, and the kind of fundamental ethos of the United States capitalism, like more is always better. You know, it's not less is more, more is more, more is better. So I think the conjunction between these things is, is kind of implicit. And first of all, I'm, I'm very skeptical that it's true. In the case of AI in particular, more and more data uh, organized around weaker and weaker assumptions doesn't produce better information and it definitely doesn't generate knowledge. It just looks like it. So I think that's a concern. 
I also think, of course, you know, there are gigantic climate and energy considerations, given the enormous amount of energy that that uh, building an AI requires. So, so this idea that more is always better, I think is really questionable. I also think it's sometimes quite lazy because what it means is we're not going to bother with discernment. We'll just have it all and then we'll figure it out. Yeah, and the idea of more is better and certainly the environmental costs are particularly, I think, consequential here where to operate these engines requires enormous computational power, which only companies like Microsoft and Google have. So Microsoft, so quote unquote, invested billions of dollars in uh, in OpenAI, but what they were really investing was tokens or vouchers which allow OpenAI to use its platforms, which have significant environmental costs and consequences yeah. too, doesn't it, Margaret? Yeah. Now, the, the environmental consequences are gigantic. And the more that people design AIs, the obviously the worse it gets. And this is hugely at odds with Microsoft's uh, policy of becoming uh, carbon negative, I think, by 2030. And to be fair to them, you know, they have pioneered a, a tremendous amount in the industry and very much led the way. Brad Smith's blog on decarbonization has been very influential for other companies. So they've kind of got their, you know, the right foot in, in that camp and the other foot in the AI camp. And it's not a very stable way to stand. Well, they're as conflicted as Sam Altman. Then. Yeah. But are they, uh, but I think is, there, thinking, is their conflict perhaps a little bit more painful to them than the one that seems to be to Sam Altman? Well, I think it's a little bit more painful because I think Microsoft has tried to be the kind of grown up in the room in a lot of these uh, ethical explosions that we see on a regular basis coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, they've tried to be statesmanlike. They've tried to be ethical. I think Nadella has tried very hard to position Microsoft as a more kind of civilized, mature business that can still be creative, but won't, won't break stuff. And I think this is going to become a harder problem for him. It's absolutely at odds with their environmental strategy. And I think it may become at odds with their attitude towards their users and the producers of intellectual property generally. We are speaking with Margaret Heffernan, a longtime friend who's been on the show several times before. Uh, she's participating next week, at the end of next week, uh, in our Barcelona seminar on a creative manifesto for a critical AI future. I want to address that after the break. But first of all, I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for helping bring this very high quality content. Going to run a short uh, video feature on liberties, and then we'll be back with Margaret to talk about this manifesto and what creatives do and don't need from these new AI engines. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 33 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, 
of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with my old friend Margaret Heffernan, uh, the author of Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, many other books. And she's participating uh, in an event that I'm help curate and lead next week in Barcelona at the Santa Monica Museum, Creative Manifesto for a Critical AI Future. I know, Margaret, you're working on a new book on art and uncertainty and what artists can and can't teach us about our uncertain world. Um, what's your sense of what artists should and shouldn't fear from these new AI platforms? Um, I think it varies a little bit according to which uh, art form you participate in. But I, um, I chair uh, an organization here in the UK called DAX, which is the Collecting Society for Visual Artists. And we distribute more, mon more money to artists than probably any other institution in the country. Um, we, because we're, we're, license, we're helping them to license their material and pay for copyright and so on and taking down um, in where we find infringements. So it's, it's an important organization for the livelihoods of artists. Um, there are a whole bunch of issues here. The first of which is, of course, in order to create AIs that create visual art or so-called art, requires scraping millions and millions, if not billions of images. And there is an ongoing issue, and it's a legal issue, about um, how that usage, because it is usage, is going to be compensated for. Because obviously, if you were doing this on a smaller scale, a less automated scale, those artists would be entitled to um, some kind of licensing fee. So that's one big issue. There's another issue, which is, um, is this new AI art, so to speak, does it, is it, a piece of intellectual property and can anybody own it? So far, the legal cases have said that actually nobody can own it, which is kind of interesting because it suggests nobody can make any money out of it. So this is absolutely in the crosshairs of saying, oh no, it's just a tool for artists to use because if it's a tool, if artists use it, they can't own it that becomes extremely troubling. Can I jump in, uh, Margaret, here? Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. When you say they can't own it, OpenAI owns ChatGPT with Microsoft. So when you say can't own it, what do you mean? It means, um, so there's been a case recently um, in which the, the legal decision was made that if you create a piece of art using AI, that piece of art doesn't have any copyright protection because it wasn't made by a person, so to speak. But of course, if you fed it all of the prompts and you're kind of maneuvering it as an artist, then the issue is who owns it? You know, is it the product of all of its ingredients? Is it the product of the person, as it were, applying it? So who decides where the ownership lies? And all of this stuff is finding its way through courts, both in the EU, the UK, and the US. And so it's still very, very unstable. Um, it's kind of interesting because if nobody owns it, nobody can make any money out of it, which you know may be an advantage for some people and a disadvantage for others. Um, 
but there's also i think if you take a different industry so for example you take the music industry um and it's generally true in the art world that most people most people who go into the arts don't last more than five years right it's a pretty brutal sifting process but those who do there are all kinds of piece, ways of working which allow them to survive those five years and develop their art and keep going and in the music world for example one of the most traditional of these is writing jingles and music for commercials um, which a lot of, of musicians in or out of music music colleges do now it is vanishingly easy now to generate that kind of music using AI. And many musicians tell me, actually, it's pretty much as good. This was never going to be truly great music. You know, opening the pizza box is not a great moment of uh, emotional revelation. But the problem here is that these are these are ways of working which both train musicians, but also help them figure out what their livelihood is going to be. One of the issues with AI is it cuts a couple of the first rungs on the ladder in many of the arts. And so the question is, what happens to those young artists who simply can't, can't make it to the third or fourth rung in a single leap? And I think there is a real risk here that it undermines what is needs to be a healthy ecosystem for artists at the beginning of their careers. You mentioned that you work with a number of collection agencies in the UK for right. artists on behalf of artists. We had a, a quite a distinguished graphic artist on the show last month, hmm. uh, Carla Ortiz. She's involved in a legal case against some of the AI platforms uh, who she claims are stealing her graphic art. What's your take? And there's a big case going through the courts at the moment um, when it comes to uh, uh, writers suing OpenAI, uh, yeah. nonfiction authors. What's your yeah. take on that? Does the law need to change so that writers and graphic artists like um, Carla Ortiz will be reimbursed by these platforms for them, quote unquote, borrowing from their creativity? Um, actually, to put it bluntly, yes, they do need to be compensated. Because actually, if you can't scrape their work, you have, the AI has nothing to work with. So, the, so, so there is nothing except the work that artists have put out there. I mean, what you could do, I suppose, as an artist, is simply refer, refuse to put anything online. But that's going to make your livelihood, again, extremely, extremely difficult. But I don't think you can use great hunks of other people's work to make your own work and expect not to pay for it and expect people to carry on throwing their work away for free. And we've been through this before. We went through it with the search engines and Google who downloaded the entire Internet, built a very smart search engine, which we're all addicted to. We can't live without, uh, but doesn't pay us for the information. Isn't the same thing happening once again? Yes, I think it is. I mean, I do think, you know, it's pretty extraordinary the degree to which consumers who kind of know, I mean, this is willful blindness, right? They kind of know and they kind of don't know that actually they are really the product, that they are downloading their data, in effect, to Google in return for something that they value, but without any control over it. Um, 
but I think it's different in the sense that I can read something online, um, but I can't do anything with it and share it without permission. Now, you can say that enforcement isn't perfect. Well, enforcement is never perfect. But the fundamental principle that work made by somebody has, has protection for that person, I think is really fundamental. And one of the reasons it's fundamental is because without that protection, um, a lot of that work simply won't get made and it certainly won't get distributed. And this is why we invented patent law and it's why we invented copyright. So I think if you want the kind of lively uh, creative environment on which the world has thrived for hundreds of years, you can't expect you can't expect artists to be altruists because they won't be able to be altruists because they'll have nothing to live on. And the idea that artists can just should just live on air, well, is preposterous. Nobody out, nobody working in Silicon Valley expects to donate their work for free to build AIs or to build anything else. So I don't understand what it is about creative people that makes others think that they should do it for love, but everybody else has to do it for money. But Margaret, some people might respond, that's not entirely true. Steve Jobs stole from Xerox to create his mouse. We all know that. He got away with it because it wasn't entirely illegal, just in the same way as Bob Dylan stole from Muddy Waters to create his art. He never gave any money back to Muddy Waters or the entire blues tradition or, or anything else. Isn't the history of art, of artists visual artists writers musicians they all steal that's just the nature of the creative process and they've never in the past been forced to pay back the people they borrowed from using that word carefully well yes i mean there's a very big difference between stealing and being influenced by and of course we've seen lots of cases like this in uh, as far as music is concerned now drawing quite fine lines between the difference between those two things. You know, so many of the um, of the cases going through, you know, about stealing stair and staircase to heaven, I think Ed Sheeran just pursued a case. Um, there is a fine line between influence and theft. That has always been true. It has always been the case that if I want to quote scads of T.S. Eliot in my next book, I'm going to have to pay for that. In this, but it, it's also the case that if I want to refer to April being the cruelest month, I don't have to pay for that because it's a very, very, very small piece of the work. The difficulty with AI is twofold. First of all, identifying contribution and secondly, scale. And this is really the huge problem that nobody has ever quite got their hands around with the Internet, which is that all kinds of things which on a small scale don't prove, don't prove to be so destructive. On the scale at which the internet operates, it, enormous damage can be done. Margaret, this is something I discussed with Victor Meyer Schoenberger up the road from you at Oxford. Do we, and he tended to think we, we need this, do we need a, a, a black box when it comes to these AI platforms which we can open and understand how the work of people like Carla Ortiz is being used to create these products. Otherwise, 
it's all speculation. It's impossible to quantify in any way. Yeah, I think we do. And I think, you know, there have been companies in the past that have hidden behind, oh, it's a trade secret. I don't think this kind of stuff is impossible to audit. And there are plenty of, you know, very good mathematicians out there who don't think so either. Um, and I think it's important with regard to the arts because otherwise you'll just decimate the creative industries. And at which point, you know, I just hate to think the kind of crappy movies that are going to be on offer, frankly. Um, so I think you have to do it because it's actually something that people, not just artists, depend on. You know, this is how generations, it's how nations articulate their identity. It's how they think. In a way, it's how a culture thinks. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if we devolve all of our thinking to AI, it leaves us unthinking. Well, I mean, there may be plenty of people who are comfortable with that. I'm certainly not. And I'm not for my children or their children. And I think there's a further point here, which is we have to stop thinking about just how much money is this going to make for me? And think about what kind of world am I creating that my children will have to live in and not be able to buy their way out of? Is it really, though, an either or when it comes to human creativity and AI? Another of our participants uh, in Barcelona next week is Stephen Marsh, who I think is a little more optimistic than you about how technologies like ChatGPT will empower creators more. He, in fact, wrote a new detective novel, which he's actually selling. I don't know whether it's illegal or not, uh, in association with ChatGPT. Shouldn't all artists be using these platforms to enhance their own creativity, whether it's visual or musical or textual? Well, I think to be fair to artists, many of them are playing with it to see, you know, what can I do with it that I couldn't do any other way? I think that's certainly the case because most artists are very curious and, and, and quite open-minded, actually, about AI. But I think the question we have to ask is how is the work that they produce using it protected? And because if you can protect their work, then the problem becomes very much less severe. But if you can't, it doesn't. I mean, I think it's also important to say that, you know, we're treating AI as though somehow what it's generating is absolutely hunky-dory. I mean, it's quite interesting. I probably, I'm probably telling tales out of school, but I'll tell it anyway. I spoke um, several months ago at a conference hosted by Vinod Kosla, uh, who is, of course, an investor. Yeah, and, and Kosla has been very explicit in suggesting that art historically or artists have always borrowed from the past. Yes, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, but anyway, I was introduced. I was introduced. I did a sort of on-stage fireside chat, and um, and the partner who interviewed me was reading an introduction about me, which he was very proud to say had been generated by ChatGPT. I would say at least fifty percent of it was incorrect. So you know, so there are several issues here. One of them is, of course, ownership, copyright, intellectual property. And the other part of it is that some of it's just rubbish and some of it will be misleading. And it's not as if we don't know now about fake news and the consequences.
So there are landmines all around this stuff. I'm not saying, well, we should never go there, but I am saying we have enough red flags, we can see enough potential harm that we ought to, we need to find a way to make this stuff safer before we deploy it. I'm surprised that Kostler invited you. He probably all his information about you was wrong, which is, explains the invitation. Well, actually, to be fair to him, I have spoken at his conference before, and you know we got along just fine. But as a as a demonstration of the technology, I'm afraid it fell flat on its face. Yeah, I've had him on the show. He's a rather odd character, but certainly very smart. Let's end with our role in the future, Margaret. You oh. you done a lot of thinking about this your TED speech the human skills we need in an unpredictable world uh, has been very successful many hundreds of thousands of views what human skills do we need to oh. cherish protect develop in yeah. the age of AI I think what we really need to think about hard is as we can automate lots of tasks what are the things we can do which technology can't do? Which is to imagine the future, because let's not forget, all data is historical, right? There is no data set for the future. So we need human imagination, critical and artistic, to imagine the kind of future we want, to make sure we don't get dragged into the future we don't want. And I think that creative capacity to think without constraint Right, to think freely and consider thousands of options, but actually to judge them and to feel what they might be like to live with. I think that's really critical. And one of the reasons I'm working on the book that I'm working at the moment is every organization I work with comes to me and says, Margaret, can you please make our people more creative? You know, that's what kind of what we need from them now. And the, the, the answer to that is, they always were creative. What are we doing in the way that we manage our companies, businesses, organizations that actually constrains that? And what can we do in the way that we run these places to liberate that imagination, to, to do what it alone is capable of doing, which is creating genuinely human experiences and emotions that will see us through what's going to be a pretty bumpy future yeah, as you said margaret there is no ai about the future only humans can think about the future is that correct i think so and only humans can imagine what it might be like to to live in the different futures we can conjure up imaginatively to try them on and see how we feel about them and that's going to be pretty fundamental to making them acceptable 